Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the 458th show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Carol Stable, professor and acting dean at the University of Oregon. We're going to be talking about the Broadcast 41, Women and the Anti-Communist Blacklist. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Brett Menard. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Sapsapital. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. So first of all, welcome to the show, Carol. Thank you very much for having me on your 458th episode. We are excited. Yeah, this is a cool topic, and we haven't done this one, bef- this kind of one before, so it's very exciting for us. So the first segment of our show is called Farouk Dinar, and, and really we just want to give our back our listeners some background um, information to today's subject. So can you mm-hmm. kind of start us off with some basic information on the state of American politics and entertainment at the start of the Cold War? Right. Um, it, at the beginning of the Cold War, well, the period my, my book covers, so starting around 1947, um, there's a lot of ferment in the industry. I, I think the best way to describe it probably is, is to think about the early days of the Internet. Um, television was on the horizon. Um, everyone knew it was going to be a huge new medium. Um, and so there was a lot of excitement and enthusiasm across different um, areas of the entertainment industry, because they all understood that in one way or another, the work that they would be doing would be feeding into this new industry. So there was a lot of excitement in the air. There was a sense, especially for people who didn't have a foothold in more mature industries like film um, and, and magazines and news media, that that television might also open up new possibilities for different ways of storytelling. I think that it's it's true historically that when a new medium is introduced, there there's all this sort of utopian hope that this new medium will help democratize um, media. That was certainly the case um, in the in the um, in the mid 1940s, um, when a lot of people thought that television could really be a force for good, and there were a lot of people who were very excited about participating in that project. Okay, so what then? How does politics start to work its way into this brave new world of of entertainment? (laughs) Well, as you can imagine, um, you know, especially coming on the heels of World War II, there was a great deal of concern about how the new medium could be used for ill. And there were plenty of examples from World World War II about how radio was used to propagandize, um, you know, both. Um, especially in the Axis countries, but also in in the United States. Um, So there were real concerns about how this new medium um, might also be a force for ill. And I think that because television combined, um, combined, it combined sound with pictures, and it was going to be a medium that was consumed in, in American homes. I think there was a lot of concern about protecting those homes from malign political influences. Okay, so we've kind of talked about entertainment and politics. Your book is specifically about um, 41 women. So what are, how are women doing in this new medium as it's developing? Are we seeing, you know, because in general, we still had, at least up to World War II, a pretty male-dominated society in terms of, access um 
So has that started to change? Are we seeing more women involved as this process is is working its way uh, in its infancy? That's a that's a really interesting question, and and I think that what happens in, in between the wars and certainly beginning in World War One is that when men leave jobs um, to to go to war, it opens up possibilities in industry for women. So beginning in World War One, women start making some inroads in magazine publishing, um, in news, the newspaper industry. Um, in radio, um, to a lesser degree in film. Um, but certainly those wartime economies open up possibilities for women. It's also helpful to keep in mind that, um, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, um, you know, a lot of, um, there are a lot of demographic changes too. So women are, and, you know, I'm, I'm mostly talking about white, more privileged women. They're marrying later. Um, their access to education is increasing, and they are making these inroads into um, entertainment industries that have previously been reserved for men. I think that that accelerates during World War II, and so you also have a generation of women who maybe started in the 20s and now are very established in, um, in radio in particular, Mary Margaret McBride, certainly Gertrude Berg. I mean, these are household names, even though we don't remember many of them today. Um, but they certainly would have been known to listeners back in the in, in the 40s and into the 50s. So these there was a group of women who was really it. They were established. They had networks. They were at the top of their game. They'd had a lot of a lot of successes, um, and and they were also very eager to move into television. I think that's true of theater as well. Um, because for a lot of performers in particular, um, television promised um, more regular work than work on Broadway and off-Broadway promise. So there was this sort of cohort of women that were, um, again, having a lot of really exciting successes um, who were poised to, to move forward in 45, 46, and 47. Okay, we have about a minute and a half left for this first segment, so I do want to kind of introduce the last term. Give us in a minute, in 90 seconds, give us the definition of a blacklist. The definition of a blacklist, um, it was a list that circulated mostly informally. Um, It was circulated through anti-communist newspapers, through anti-communist publications, and it listed people, performers, wranglers, you know, pretty much the the whole gamut of employees in in television and radio um, who were suspected of either being members of the Communist Party or what was called fellow travelers. And the blacklist was used by advertisers and sponsors to screen personnel um, and also to um, justify um, canceling shows and firing talent. All right. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. 
Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Carol Stable, professor and acting dean at the University of Oregon, and we're talking about the Broadcast 41, Women and the Anti-Communist Blacklist. Our history buffs for today are Rick Sweet and Brett Menard. Rick, as the political scientist of the group, why don't you start us off? Thank you, Jay. As the unemployed political scientist, <laughs> <laughs> Carol, uh, Carol, what? Uh, uh, there are forty-one uh, women who apparently were blacklisted. That were the focus of your book. What proof? What proof did? Uh, I'm assuming the McCarthyists and the Red Scare is what you know culminated all of this. Uh, how was it documented that these women were, in fact, communist sympathizers? It, it really wasn't. Um, the the anti-communists and the the people who really fomented the blacklist in television were former FBI agents, um, oh. and they they trafficked in what they called factual information. Um, but really, what it came down to was guilt by association and innuendo. Very few of these women were members of the Communist Party. Um, they never came out and said they were members of the Communist Party. Um, this is the group, the American Business Consultants, because they were all lawyers. And so they were very careful to avoid um, lawsuits where they could. Um, but what they did is that they suggested that these women um, had been involved in organizations that were fronts for the Communist Party. And it was through that logic of association that they drew the conclusion that these women were somehow tainted and shouldn't be on, on television. Okay, Brett. So you talk about them drawing these conclusions and being evidence-based. So what what is the evidence that they'd cite? Is this truly the the case of uh, Salem, like we all had to read in high school English, or is something else going on here? You know, that's interesting because Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, was based on his experience of blacklisting during the McCarthy era. Um, you know, what it would come down to in many cases was that um, someone um, and mostly unidentified FBI informants had said that someone was a member of the Communist Party. And because the organization, the American Business Consultants, um, they apparently had stolen files from the FBI when they left the FBI. Um, so they were, in, in, in many cases, they would cite confidential informants um, who had said that so-and-so was a member of a, the Communist Party. In other instances, if the Daily Worker, which is the Communist Party's newspaper, if they said anything favorable, favorable about a person, that could also be considered evidence that they were a fellow traveler or a member of the Communist Party. In many cases, it was enough to... Um, mention civil rights, to be an, act, an advocate for civil rights, um, to create this guilt by association, too. Because the, the, the Bureau and the American Business Consultants considered civil rights activism to be um, uh, evidence of membership in the Communist Party. Okay, so we've kind of talked in general terms. I, I'd like to hear a little bit about specific individuals. Can you pick three or four people who who really stand out as being 
either the most prominent folks who were targeted or maybe the most egregious abuse of power um, mm-hmm. in targeting folks or, or however you want to define, you know, but give us three or four names and a little story so that we can personalize this. Certainly. Um, you know, I'll start with Shirley Graham, Shirley Graham Du Bois. Shirley Graham Du Bois was an incredibly talented musician, musician, writer. Um, as an African-American woman, she had moved from industry to industry because she would come up against the limits of racism in a particular industry um, and was often blacklisted in other industries. So she had worked for the Federal Theater Project. The Federal Theater Project was shut down um, mainly because um, they were trying to integrate theater. They were producing anti-racist plays and, um, and really promoting um, black directors and performers. So she was ahead of the what was called the Negro Unit in Chicago. That got shut down because of the blacklist and defunded. Um, then she moved to um, working for the YWCA, YWCA, the YWCA um, at Fort Huachuca. Then she got shut down there because of blacklisting, um, because of her efforts to support black troops. Um, she then started publishing adolescent fiction. Um, she was living in New York City at the time. She was publishing um, these these adolescent novels about um, George Washington Carver and Frederick Douglass and Pocahontas and Benjamin Banneker, who is a clockmaker and a surveyor in Washington, D.C. And she was having a great deal of success. Um, she was blacklisted again, then enlisted in red channels. Um, she was married. She married in the early 1950s to W.E.B. Du Bois and then became more even even more subject to harassment. Um, her mail was opened. Her, they would go the FBI would go through her trash. They cultivated their friends as informants. Now, Shirley Graham was a member of the Communist Party. Um, but these were these were it was adolescent fiction. It was hardly a threat to national security. Um, but her books were banned. Um, in places like Syracuse, New York, and West Virginia and Tennessee. Um, and she and W.E.B. Du Bois wound up moving to Ghana um, because it was very difficult for them to get employment or to, um, or to um, live in a way that felt safe and secure in the United States. Another thing that the, the anti-communists were really concerned about is that CBS in the 1940s was talking about um, the fact that they needed to have more African-American broadcasters. They they wanted to diversify their newsroom. And Shirley Graham and W.E.B. Du Bois were two of the names that were being floated as possible commentators at CBS News. Now, CBS News would have looked a lot different if that had actually happened. But I think that that's a really powerful story. She actually went on to found the first television system in Ghana. She was a, a woman of prodigious imagination and energies. Um, another person I'll, I'll talk briefly about is Gypsy Rose Lee, who's a self-identified exotic dancer. Um, she was this brilliant, witty, really, really smart woman. Um, she was just slated to take over um, a, game, a, a, a talk show called What Makes You Tick. Um, and she was not a member of the Communist Party. She was a member of several unions. And, and of course, trade unionists were also signaled out by the blacklist, by the blacklist as well. Um, and um, her, her show was canceled. She was, you know, actually the head of NBC went to bat for her, but was no match um, for the power of the blacklist. Uh, and her show was canceled. 
Um, the last person I'll mention briefly is, is Hazel Scott, who is married to Congressman Adam Clayton Scott, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Um, she was the first African-American woman to have her own um, variety show. And it was very successful, very popular. She was also an outspoken advocate for civil rights. She won a landmark civil rights case against a restaurant in Spokane, Washington, that had refused to serve her um, in her traveling companion, then promptly donated all the money she won to the NAACP. She refused to perform in front of segregated troops during World War II. She had it written to her contract. Um, she had a very um, infamous battle with a Hollywood studio because she refused to wear a costume that she felt was degrading to African-American women. Um, she was um, listed in um, one of these blacklists and actually went to testify before HUAC. It didn't matter. Her, her, her show was still canceled and no explanation was given except for the fact that they felt that they could sell the spot more easily with, with another person in that, in that place. So is this incredible amount of, of talent and energy and expertise and experience that, that really was eliminated from the industry at a moment, you know, when it was very new and it was just developing um, the kinds of routines and stories that would go on to narrate for decades to come. Okay, Rick. Yeah, uh, Carol, just uh, out of curiosity, the, the 41 people you were looking at researching uh, can you give kind of a general uh, opinion as to the damage done to their lives and their careers by being wrongfully um, uh, indicted as being a communist communist uh, sympathizer? Yeah, um you know, I spent years and years in archives reading their papers and reading things that they had kept for years. I, I remember this one, um, Vera Caspery, who was one of the writers I was researching, had um, a, a piece of paper on which she had written her notes when she was called um, to talk to one of the studio heads uh, who wanted her to name names. And you could tell that the paper had been crumpled up and then unfolded yeah. and crumpled up and unfolded. And it was this like kind of material example of, of just what these people went through because there really was no recourse. You were being um, accused by faceless people. Um, you were being smeared. And then the only way to clear yourself was either to go to the very people who had smeared you in the first place or to name names. And the majority of these women refused to name names and didn't want, didn't want to do that. Um, but, you know, there, there's at least at least one suicide, two suicides that I know of. Um, people's families broke up. People had to move out of the country in order to get work. Um, you know, some people, a lot of them wound up resorting to teaching because it was the only profession they could still pursue, um, you know, with a degree of anonymity that the, that the blacklist made mandatory. So it was it was really devastating for this generation. Um, and I think it was devastating for, for the people who were coming up around them and seeing this happen, right? If this could happen to established stars who spoke out, then what would that mean for you if you're, if you're just like an up-and-coming writer who's 22 or 23? I mean, you really learn um, not to rock the boat and not to say anything that might be construed as controversial. Okay, Brett. You talked about how um, a lot of these people couldn't find work in entertainment and made the shift to teaching. So is this 
where we get the origins of um, higher education as being a hotbed of subversive thought, or um, is that just something that happened to mesh up? No, that's interesting. That's an interesting question. I, I think that that when um, when the first blacklist begin to unfold, and that's in the the 1930s. Um, and actually as early as the mid-1920s, there are different spheres of activities that are being targeted. Um, media is a latecomer to those fields that are being targeted by the blacklist. Education and government are very firmly in the sights of anti-communists um, from the beginnings of the blacklist because they know that um, you know, universities and education, they're places where we teach people to be critical and to question things and to think about things and to consider different points of view. So they were really looking at higher education, also secondary education. Um, when I presented on the blacklist, especially on the East Coast, I, you know, I frequently have people come up to talk to me whose parents were, um, were, were public school teachers in New York City to tell me about stories about their, their about their families being blacklisted. Okay. Um, so for most of us, the idea is, the feeling is that once McCarthy uh, kind of cooks his, his own goose uh, in his hearings and, and gets Eisenhower involved and, and so forth and so on, um, that, that that's kind of the 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 end of blacklisting and it it goes away and it never really comes back again um so i have sort of a two-part question here mm -hmm. uh when blacklisting after mccarthy does blacklisting really go away is that true or is it really a myth and then second of all did were any of these women at that point which is probably what a decade at least mm -hmm. down the road um, were they able to kind of get back into the entertainment profession or by that point, those of them who were still alive had been so soured on the idea that, that they never bothered? Mm -hmm. Good question. So when it ended, um, that's an interesting question. Jean Muir, who is one of the first cases of blacklisting, said she was still getting, um, when she tried to talk about the blacklist on radio as late as, I think, 1967, she was still getting blooped. Um, they would they would refuse to, to name the network um, that she had worked for. So I think that the blacklist um, really only started to lift in the late 1960s. Um, I'm trying to remember what year the Waltons premieres because the Waltons is a, is a hotbed of blacklisted talent. It's, it's really interesting. There are a number of people, Will Gear among them, who had been blacklisted, um, who Earl Hamner provided refuge for um, through that show and, and in some cases reinvigorated their careers. Our producer, uh, let me interrupt just yeah. a minute and answer your yeah. question. 1972 is when the Waltons yeah. first came on. Yes, yeah, thank you. Um, so, so that's, that's a really, the Waltons is a really important moment, but I would say it's toward the later 1960s that, um, some people start to be able to make their way back, um, from the blacklist. For women though, um, keep in mind, these were, these were, these women were mostly in their forties in the 19, sure. in the 1950s. So by the time the late 1960s roll around for the performers, they've aged out of the industry. 
Um, they, you know, they, Jean Muir, who was getting a job as um, Mother Aldrich in 1950, wasn't going to get a job as anyone's mother in the 1960s. Right. Um, I think some of them had pretty successful careers in soap operas because um, the women who wrote for soap operas and the women who produced them also provided space for women who had been blacklisted. The blacklisters weren't really paying attention to soap operas because no one thought that they were very important. Sure. Um, so, so that's a short answer. Paula Weinstein, who is blacklisted, she isn't one of the women I write about. Um, she went on to found Third World Cinema in the late 1960s. Um, and she had some success into the 1970s, but it was really limited for the majority of them. All right. Well, it is customary for us to give our guests the last word on the show. So, Carol, why do you think knowing about the blacklists of the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, maybe even early 60s is relevant in today's world? Well, I would say two things. One is that, um, you know, the, the belief of the blacklisters was that there was one way to tell a story and there was only one way that was American. Um, and that really, you know, narrowed the possibility of the stories that could be told on television. I was thinking about Sam Elliott's comments about Jane Campion's Power of the Dog um, and thinking, you know, that that's that was the the that was the viewpoint, right? There was one way to tell a western, and damn it, um, if you didn't tell a western that way, you know you were going to get in trouble for it. Um, the other thing I would point to are, are things like the the um, the censorship of mouth Art Spiegelman's graphic novel in Tennessee. Um, there are still ongoing struggles about the stories that that are going to be told, um, especially to children, especially to college students, and so I think. The story of the blacklist is a story about what happens when you let the voices of censorship um, prevail. Yeah, and I'm going to piggyback off of that. I also think we have a tendency often to 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 have very short memories and and to assume that that something that happened in the past could not possibly happen in the future or in the present. And this is one of those places where when you look at the kinds of things that have popped up in the last half decade or so, uh, some as a direct result of Trump, but some have been sort of percolating, it seems to me that the environment of blacklisting is very much alive and thriving in today's world. And something that, that if we're not very careful, could its, rear its ugly head again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, if I could just piggyback yeah. on, can I piggyback on that? Because I think that that's true on, you know, both poles, all poles of the political spectrum, whether you're looking at, you know, at, at what we saw during the Trump administration, but also cancel culture. Sure. Right. I mean, yep. you know, I, I think a lot about teaching, you know, the films of someone like Alfred Hitchcock or, or Woody Allen. And I don't think we shouldn't not teach those texts. But there are people who think that those shouldn't be part of what we what we view or what we read. I think that those are dangerous viewpoints. Absolutely. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA San Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 458th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Sapsapital. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Carol Stable, professor and acting dean at the University of Oregon, who's been talking with us, with, to us about the, black, the Broadcast 41 Women in Anti-Communist Blacklist. The history bus for today's show were Rick Sweet and Brett Menard. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Otsa Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible, horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.